You're listening to episode 197 of Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here with Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Apologetics and Church History here at the seminary, returning to lead us through our series on church history, continuing now in the period of the Middle Ages. Dr. Strange, thank you for joining me once again. It's good to be here and to be addressing history. Something we all love. Yes, absolutely. So to kick off this segment, we're going to talk about monasticism. Now, you talked about this near the end of the Ancient Church podcasts. Uh, Remind us of monasticism's origins and development up to the early Middle Ages. Yeah, let me just say this about the Middle Ages as we go into this. This is that great period of church history that for many Protestants— is a vacuum or a curiosity. Uh, we, we can tend to know, I'm going to answer your question, but I want to just say <laughs> this. We can tend to know something of the ancient church, right? Particularly because Augustine was there. And then we tend to think Middle Ages. Well, yeah, Aquinas, but Aquinas is some centuries hither. We'll talk about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get into the, the high middle and the late Middle Ages, uh, before the Reformation. But uh, church history is important really in all of its periods, and the Lord is working and having his work. And so we can talk at a, at a later point about why this sometimes certain periods get called dark ages uh, in this. But uh, yeah, this is an important period. The Lord continues by his spirit to be with his church. The church, because it's not infallible, uh, continues to both err in places uh, and progress as it walks in faithfulness to the revelation of God. Uh, But monasticism, just to remind uh, our listeners, uh, we talked uh, last uh, in the last segment of the ancient church about the origins of the movement, uh, and we said that some scholars think that it's uh, prompted by late Jewish communal and ascetic ideals, such as those, uh, say, the Essenes uh, that represented the Dead Sea cult and so forth. Uh, Others see a kind of Manichaean dualism or Gnosticism in the various forms that inspired extremes of asceticism with Christianity. Uh, And those who were looking for biblical origins point uh, to things in Jesus where he talks about being a eunuch for the sake of the mm-hmm. kingdom, yep. uh, or Paul who talks about uh, he wished that in 1 Corinthians 7, those uh, he writes to would be as he is, not married, uh, as he mentions at that point. So com- there, there there, are things in, in the teachings of Jesus and Paul that speak about what we might call today radical Christianity, in mm-hmm. other words, something that... that really requires this kind of extraordinary uh, commitment uh, and that may one may forego marriage, one may forego one's own goods and property, one may do all of this to live in community, to withdraw from the world and be dedicated to the Lord. But we also talked about how that um, a lot of this sort of radical ethos, if you want to call it that, was lived out or expressed in the ancient church uh, when the church remained 
before the conversion of Constantine in 312 when the church remained in those first centuries under persecution. Remember, they had 10 waves yeah. of persecution. And so a lot of the the ethos that's always there in the church uh, for certain people, I, I want to be sold out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the sense of not an ordinary life, an ordinary means of grace being used in one's life, but something more committed uh, during the period of the persecution before the conversion of the emperor, that was often expressed in martyrdom. Yep. That was seen yep. as the ultimate uh, expression of that. So what you have particularly after the conversion of the emperor and the the acceptance, if you will, of Christianity in the Roman Empire, you have this new emphasis. There had been these forms, uh, whether you're talking about the Desert Fathers, you can think particularly of, of Anthony of Egypt, uh, who was very much uh, admired uh, by many, certainly admired uh, by Athanasius and, and many others. You can think of the early development of the so-called Kenobitic, the common life monasticism over against the earlier Anchoritic monasticism. Uh, you can think about that monasticism of the East spreading to the West, and Augustine and others have rules that they develop. Uh, Caesars of Arles, Columban, uh, come to develop rules that ultimately are overshadowed uh, by Benedict uh, around 540 with his rule. But the point is, is monasticism takes on a life of its own and becomes uh, an expression in the church of you might even say something like the high road to heaven, yeah. Uh, because by the time you get into the Middle Ages, and then uh, you have the development, we'll talk maybe at a later point some more about the development of of monasticism with the Franciscans and the Dominicans. But by that time, monasticism becomes uh, in the scheme that is developing of of how one is saved. Mm. How does one get to heaven? monasticism is seen as kind of the high road to that. Um, just an example would be um, the Sermon on the Mount was taken to be, you might say, a true exposition or a spiritual exposition uh, of the law. Mm. And so when Jesus came and the Pharisees all imagined that they kept the law and they would say to Jesus, well, we're no murderers, we're no adulterers. Jesus rather probingly says, well, the seeds of this are lust in the heart or hatred in the heart. The seeds of adultery and murder are inward. And in fact, because you have this, you are not perfect. So in other words, Jesus gives a really searching exposition of the law, which to speak of the way the reformers do that as a first use, would convict everybody. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount in the first place shows us nobody can keep this law. Mm-hmm. And then it shows us, uh, when we speak about a third use, as Calvin and others did, that what you want then as you're converted, as you're following Jesus, is you don't just want the externals of the Pharisees. You want something very internal. Well, what happens, you say, how does this, what does it have to do with monasticism? Well, what it has to do with monasticism is the conviction comes that who can really do this your average Christian isn't going to do this. And even most of your parish priests 
aren't going to do this. And the parish priests come to be called the secular clergy, the mm-hmm. clergy that are in the world. Yeah. Whereas these folks, these monastics, come to be called regular clergy, those who live according to the rule, regula, mm-hmm. and are in these kinds of communities. And it's really these people who can only live in this way. I mean, Paul says, for example, pray without ceasing. And they would say, well, how can you do that? Well, you have to structure the whole day according to prayers. And you need to be in this all the time. Of course, if we really understand that, uh, they would also do manual labor and do other things. Nobody can actually be in conscious prayer all the time. So Paul doesn't obviously mean that. And there's also, and we even have a great hymn that speaks about it, prayer being really a whole attitude. And but, but but what you get here is this notion in the Middle Ages, and we're going to see this more as we talk about this, as we go along, what you're going to witness in the Middle Ages is the clericalization of the church. Right. And that will include sort of the first order, the regular clergy, the monks and nuns, the second order, the secular clergy, the parish priests, and all the hierarchy of the church. They're going to become, in the eyes of Rome, the church. Mm-hmm. They will be really the church, uh, and they will be living out the Christian life properly. Sure, Most Christians who just are having, you know, uh, are, are laboring in the fields uh, or what maybe they're noblemen even, and they're having families and they're having children. These are the people that populate the church. You can't have the church without these people, but they're not the people who the church understands to be really living the Christian life. Right. Only the clergy does. So that's the direction that this is going to move in. Now, as Protestants, we tend not to favor monasticism. Can you explain why? Yeah, well, I I think uh, a lot of what I just said uh, gets at that, doesn't it? Because, obviously, no small part of the Reformation, we don't want to talk too much about that because there's a lot more to say as we get, as we move towards it and get there. But no small part of the Reformation is the recovery, if you will, of the proper role of everyone in the church, uh, the laity that had been marginalized because the church had been clericalized, uh, recover. <laughs> and all Christians understand that we're to live in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which only can be done by the grace of God. It can be done by none of us perfectly. None of us can keep the law. We must, we must trust Jesus who alone kept it. But he having kept it for us does enable us by his spirit to make a small beginning uh, of 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 walking in all the ways that he has set forth, maybe the smallest of beginnings, right? We understand that, but Protestants do not believe that in order to really serve the Lord, you need to withdraw from the world uh, for the sake of the world. I should say that the monastics did have this ideal of we're withdrawing from the world for the sake of the world. What mm-hmm. we're doing is for the good uh, of everybody. If you were to say or make comments on whether any, I mean, you've kind of talked, touched on a little bit of them, maybe ex- expand on some of them, but good things that have come out of monasticism, what would you say? Well, providentially, no question did the Lord, there's no question that the Lord used uh, monasticism uh, because the communities formed by the monastics uh, became often, particularly now in the Middle Ages, and with the something we'll talk about in just a bit here, the 
not in this podcast, but in a future podcast, the barbarian invasions and the conversion of the barbarian tribes. During this time, that is when 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 the old Roman Empire was being overrun and what we would call Europe was in the process of formation, what we now know as Europe, as, as all the tribes come in and, and conversion happens. Uh, it was in the monasteries, oftentimes, that there was the preservation of the scriptures. Uh, that is to say, these were scriptorums where they copied the scriptures, the oh, okay. manuscripts. Yep. So they preserved that. They were preserves of learning. Um, where they kept the languages uh, alive to the degree that they were. Uh, they were preserves of piety. Uh, there was there was a great deal of piety in this. And you, you may know, for example, Thomas Cahill famously talks about this when he says, when he wrote about how the Irish saved civilization. And what the book is really about is how the monasteries mm-hmm. in Ireland preserved uh, the, the the Western heritage, both the Latin heritage uh, over against all the barbarian invasions and tribes, but the the biblical heritage uh, and the Christian heritage uh, was often preserved uh, during these times. So as we uh, progress through this segment of church history, you know, we're going to be touching on uh, various church councils, the fall of the Roman Empire, and even the rise of Islam. Throughout all of this and throughout the Middle Ages, where is monasticism going to go? Well, we could talk about um, five epochs in monastic history. Uh, there's, first of all, the appearance of the hermit and the Aramite, the that is the desert father. So that's kind of the first uh part, say, in the fourth century. Uh, And then there's Benedict of Nursia and his rule uh, in the sixth century. There's uh, Cluny and those associated with it, and that's going to involve a lot of reform within the church. Actually, uh, the the a lot of reform that's needed in certain respects, certainly morally and organizationally, is going to come out of the monasteries in the 10th and 11th centuries. Uh, and then you're going to have the rise and the spread of the mendicants, uh, the the so-called beggar orders. And these are folks who don't just remain in the monastery and do their labor and produce things that they might sell, like some monasteries sold superb brandy. Uh, couldn't <laughs> be beat. Still still do. Uh, but you have the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans who rise in the 12th and 13th centuries, and they go out of the monasteries, and they actually... Um, preach the gospel in many places and in the language of the people, which they don't hear in church because everything's in Latin and people don't really understand it. We're going to talk more about that. And then you have the Jesuit order that really defends Rome and is the opponent of the Reformation. They rise in the 16th century. So that's something of where uh, things are going to go in terms of monastic history. Next time, Dr. Strange examines the Second and Third Council of Constantinople and the Second Council of Nicaea. Tune in next time to hear about the important theological issues that were at stake in this period of church history. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.